Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast from Raymond James, designed to help you plan, invest, and live smarter. Hi, listeners. Welcome back, and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Paige Lenson. You can find this episode and more For What It's Worth on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Here at For What It's Worth, our focus is on supporting holistic financial planning, having the right plan in place that's tailored to your life, your long-term goals, and your risk tolerance. And once that plan's in place, you should also feel empowered to help protect your personal information and your assets by being aware of different types of scams that fraudsters may try to use. In this episode, we're going to cover some of the steps that you and your loved ones can take to help safeguard your identity, your information, and your dollars. Here to share her insights on fraud prevention, I'm pleased to introduce Alexandra Sagaro. She's a director and the fraud risk management lead within Raymond James anti-money laundering and financial crimes management team. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining me today and for your perspective. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Can you get us started by telling us why this is an important topic? Why is fraud prevention something that investors should should look into? You know, I think one of the biggest reasons is financial fraud impacts everyone. It does not recognize age or wealth. So it could go from our most uh, junior investors to our more senior investors. It could also hit many different plateaus of employment status. And I think the biggest thing to take away is that fraud is everywhere. And today, really, we want to give everyone the opportunity to know that regardless of age or wealth, you can be a victim of fraud. We want to give everyone the opportunity to question possible ill-intended actions before you actually move your money. The next thing we want you to really do is we want you to safeguard your personal identifiable information before it gets into the wrong hands of someone that could use it for ill-gotten gains. So today I really just want to encourage everyone to take one thing away from this conversation, make good sound decisions, protect your identity, and of course always safeguard your finances. You mentioned that these fraudsters may be targeting everybody, you know, from the younger to older, more senior investors, those with a ton of money, those maybe with not so much money. Can you tell us what these criminals are really after? You know, obviously they're they're after your money. They want to separate you because they want to um, not work hard. Although I will say looking in the mind of a fraudster, some of the schemes are really elaborate. Some of the top frauds we see that um, people fall victim to are related to scams. Those could be romance scams, those could be lottery scams, those could be tax scams. So when you're being um, notified either via phone or email and people are saying you owe taxes, but you've won all this money, um, there's no lottery that makes you pay taxes before you actually get the money. And usually they'll take the money out of the earnings. So we try to provide that education. One of the next top frauds we see is identity theft. And that's usually, especially in the age of the pandemic that we're currently in, through that digital forum. So any person contacting you um, via email, um, we see a lot of romance scams that also try to get involved with your with your digital platforms. When we talk about identity theft though, the, the main conduit is where someone's able to pretend that they're you through an email account compromise. This can also be effectuated through a business 
email compromise. And it's basically where they use your email address and then they make contact sometimes with your financial advisor, sometimes with a bank, sometimes with a loved one, and they say that they need money moved for a specified reason. They're going to limit that interaction with you, meaning that they're not going to want you to pick up the phone and, and have a conversation. They're going to say they can't get to a phone, they're out of country. Um, again, sometimes we see identity theft and scams kind of interlock and become a really big scheme. Um, but ultimately, really trying to exploit the person and remove assets from their control to the fraudster's control. And some of the examples that you mentioned really try to, to play on the emotional side that, that might come to the surface for investors. If it's, you know, these romance scams or pretending they're a grandkid in need or, you know, praying even on nat natural disasters, trying to make it feel like you've got to act now. I'm trying to make this quick and keep things moving that emotional side. Absolutely. And, and I think it's really important to know in this day and age when we are looking at the emotional side that, you know, the Federal Trade Commission did a study and people between the ages of 20 and 29 were more likely to report being a victim of fraud, whereas our more senior population between the ages of 50 and 79 were less likely. We believe that this is out of a sense of pride and the fact that they are older and they should know better and they feel just quite honestly embarrassed. So I really want to encourage all of our listeners to do not feel embarrassed. We need to know if you've been a victim because the likelihood that we can recover assets for you and help you through this and or protect and safeguard any future acts is really imperative. I think another statistics that is very, very important that the Federal Trade Commission does put out is that the amount of loss relative to different age groups. So the median loss incurred for people within their 20s is about $448. If we compare that to our, our more senior population, 50 and above, the, the losses range between $800 and $1,600. So I, I, I want to impress upon you that it's so important to question everything that comes across your, your phone, your emails, um, and just people that sometimes in this day and age, we are seeing door-to-door -door solicitations of schemes and scams. So we want to make sure that you have an understanding of that questioning aspect. I'm going to continue to say that over and over again because the old adage of if it's too good to be true, it probably is, we should always have that a little bit of suspect in the back of our minds to make sure that we are questioning things we know what we're signing, we know what we're giving away, and we know where the end result is going. So if we're giving, if, if someone's calling us and asking us for PII, which is your date of birth, your social security number, your banking account information, your full name, and sometimes I've seen it go so far as to ask you those, those out of the wallet type questions, which what is your favorite dog's name? Um, where was the last place you vacationed? You want to be highly suspect of giving any of that information out. You want to know who you're speaking to. You want to have that level of comfort with that person before you release any of those details. Let's talk about some of the groups of people that these fraudsters often try to target. We mentioned a little bit already seniors. We're going to talk more about them. But what if the groups that might be surprising to some listeners is members of the military. What can you tell us about that? You know, I think that our military personnel, and first, thank you all listeners who have served um, for, for our United States government. It's just such an impact and, and such, a, such an honor to be around you guys today. 
but the, they are prime targets because they often leave financial planning and services to others. Um, they have this undeniable trust because they're out there doing a specified job. They have limitations in communication. So they're not like you or I where we're checking our bank account every single day or they're getting alerts when a money movement has occurred or a transaction has posted to their account. So they're limited in the frequency of being able to access each of their accounts for active managing of their financial planning. So the reality of fraudsters in today's world, they rely on these opportunities to prey on those that are willing to allow someone else to kind of navigate those financial decision processing. And they're less likely to question money movements, uh, especially with this day and age with the fluctuation of our economy. It is so imperative that we wait, right? We're waiting because the market's going to go down, the market's going to go up. So there's we expect changes. Well, that's prime target for a fraudster to come in. And, and move money to effectuate personal gain. So that deployment period, it sounds like, especially if you are serving somewhere overseas, have you know more limited access to be monitoring this. Maybe you've delegated it to you know a, a loved one, a friend, a, somebody else. That kind of opens the door for these fraudsters to to potentially step through. Absolutely. The military especially are, are deployed without real-time accessibility to monitor their financial accounts. We've, we've spoken about that. They're also susceptible to email account compromises where someone, if, uh, you know, especially on the dark web, someone could go in and actually gain access to their email account. And if you're, if you're anything like me, I have all these folders set up that are clearly marked what they're for, their intents and purposes. It's, it's my organizational method, right? So doing that, if someone gets my email and they get my password, they can go in there and they can see everything. They can see the accounts I have, they can see who I primarily contact, they can then pretend to be me and then they can have those com subsequent conversations. And because if I'm an active military member and I'm deployed and or within tight spans where I don't have accessibility via the web, um, any communication that comes over the web might be considered normal. So the advisor may not question that. That might be the method of communication that was set up prior to any, you know, uh, deployments or, you know, uh, overseas activity. Um, they are, they're often targeted by, unfortunately, by people with prior military background that have that understanding of the thought process of what it means to be deployed. So it's really about understanding who you're dealing with. It's understanding about changing your passwords and, and keeping tabs as frequently as possible of what's happening. Make sure to have a plan with your financial advisor of when I'm deployed, this is how much we're going to, to have communication. This is how we're going to communicate. I don't anticipate any money movements being effectuated. So if something comes across, um, I always tell people to have a trusted point of contact. That point of contact should be able to say, no, this person does not want to do that. This is the only thing that they were expecting to do during this time away. And or set up time frames to which there will not be an emergency situation. So for a lot of times what we'll see is it's an emergency. You know, I have to have a surgery or a friend of mine's reached out to me. They need the money. I need you to go ahead and send it immediately. What we want to do is we want to make sure that we have proper planning set up for our military and we provide them the education and guidance and that we are on the same page so that they can avoid being a victim of fraud, but they can also be a, um, avoid being a victim of a scam. 
you mentioned some of these, you know, different types of scam and, and fraud attempts, specifically among the military. The FTC reported that in 2019, imposter scams were the largest category of reports from military members. And that could even include people pretending to have served to try and make that connection play on that bond to try and win over trust. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's smart, right? If you have commonalities with someone, you're more apt to immediately engage them because you feel like you have a, a connection of some, of some sorts. And I think as, as human beings, we do that routinely, right? If we're talking to someone and we don't like what they're saying, or we just don't like the way that they appear or approach us, we're more apt to walk away. But when someone's able to lure us in, it's no different than the imposter scams. If they're able to lure us in, then they're able to almost say, bait us into that activity. And then we're more apt to listen to them. And sometimes we are human beings. And as you mentioned early on in the conversation page, we have that emotional side. And that emotional side really will drive us to be like, God, I believe this person. God, yes, I want to invest with this person. Oh, yes, you want this. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And, and we, we forget what I go back to in the very beginning of this conversation is the questioning. Is it too good to be true? You know, there has to be a sort of due diligence on all of our parts to make sure that if we're going to give carte blanche to someone to just go ahead and make this financial decisions for us, then we're going to be susceptible to fraudulent activity and we're ultimately responsible. But if we try to educate ourselves, we try to reach out to different financial advisors and get information to be more informed, we are going to make a better choice and a more informed choice, which will also decrease our likelihood to be susceptible to some of these imposter scams. Let's talk about the next group of investors that can sometimes be, unfortunately, a target of these fraudsters, and that's teachers. What can you tell us about that? You know, I would say along the same breath of our military that mine is being deployed, um, but they're often so entrenched in public service to our children that they're not really familiar with the financial planning. Um, and if you think about it, you know, I have two children, so I, I know how much it is just to have two children. These teachers have class after class after class with 20 to 30 kids in each class. After a day's work, they probably just want to kick their feet up and just take a moment and just recoup from the day. So I think their unfamiliarity with financial planning, as well as just sheer exhaustion from doing their day-to-day, -day, can sometimes lead us to not make great decisions within that framework. But also, again, I keep going back to this trust factor, right? If we have someone that we trust and that we believe in, um, we see a lot of scams relative to military and teachers that actually start in-house. They start within their family and friends network. Someone has an idea. And it could be that that person is a great person, but maybe they got uh, hooked up with the wrong person that's now involved them into a scam. And it just kind of creates that, that catapult of, you know, domino effect activity. And so I think the, the same susceptibility to fraud exists for teachers. But some safeguards for them would be really to understand their advisor, understand their financial advisor, understand the people that are approaching them to invest in financial investments. You know, really, I can't go say enough about client authentication. Make sure that you're putting in key things that your advisor knows only to ask you 
that only you would know. And that means sometimes don't put it in your email, don't write it down anywhere. It should be something that's innate to you. Uh, and as all of us go through careers, we can go back to one pivot moment when, when we were younger that resonates with us, right? Whether it be a color or a place like Disney World, something that's specific to you that will spark um, that only you would know that information as a cue for client authentication. So this way your advisor knows that you are on board, you want to do this, and you're making an informed decision. But I also think I go back to questioning, you know, question where your money is being invested, understand where your money is being invested, understand the highs and the lows, and then understand the susceptibility to other people that want to infiltrate to, to take over your money so that you can safeguard it to the best of your abilities. I'm glad you keep returning to this theme of, of questioning because as, as people, as individuals, sometimes you can feel a little bit embarrassed to ask questions or feel like you're asking something that you should already know, but it sounds like you're really emphasizing, no, it's, it's okay to ask. It's okay to ask again, to make sure you understand, to make sure that you really know what you're getting into and that you've got that right level of trust with the professional that you're working with. Absolutely. I think that most people, especially fraudsters, prey on the fact that you will not want to ask questions because then they have to come up with an answer. And when you continue to probe and press, they're less likely to run off of a scripted answer and more likely having to think outside the box. And to me, that's the stir factor. That's where they're confused of how to answer it. They're, they don't know how to reply to you. So everything else that looked like they were reading from a sheet and they like, oh, they got their stuff together. They really know what they're talking about. When you keep pressing and asking more detailed, finite, granular questions and they stumble, that's when you know that they really do not understand what they're trying to sell you or scam you out of, um, and now they're fumbling. And that's the gotcha moment, right? That's where you can say, oh, wait a second, I should pause for a second. I'm asking all the right questions. I'm not getting answers that I'm comfortable with. And I always tell people, trust your gut, right? If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. There's no, no need for urgency here. Take a moment, pause, Go back, regroup, have conversations with friends and families, really discuss what's occurring. Do not feel like you have to have this knee-jerk reaction and impulsively do something. And I always try to give people the example of, you know, sometimes we're out shopping and we do this impulsive buy. And as soon as we get home, we're like, why did we do that? Why did I spend this money on this? I'm never going to wear it or I'm never going to use it, right? It is the same thing when, you know, fraudsters try to scam you out of something or when, when you're trying to invest in something and you're really unsure about it, you know, so don't make impulsive buys. Don't make impulsive decisions. Think about things. And I, I just want to kind of hit on one thing that is really, um, you know, just... I see this over and over again, and, it, and it's so personal. When we when we have our seniors that you mentioned earlier, Paige, about the grandchildren scams. And, and for those of our listeners that don't know what that is, it's usually a phone call from someone purporting to be an attorney saying that your grandchild was just involved in an accident and they hurt the other person and now they're in jail. And they cannot notify anybody else or, or call anybody else. They must send, you know, a specified amount of money to this account for this attorney, right? And this attorney is supposedly going to take care of everything. I think some key things is, first off, pause, right? Why can't you tell anybody if this person is calling you? That's the first red flag. I think the second thing would really be to, let me just call 
my grandchild and let me see, is everything okay? Uh, and or my son or daughter to say, hey, what's going on with grandchild number one? Uh, put the pause on, you know, don't be impulsive to snap to a decision because that emotional side, like you mentioned, Paige, really sets in and you're just like, oh my goodness, I just, I want to help my grandchild. I cannot tell you, um, we have some great advisors and great branch associates out there that have been so diligent in picking up on our, our fraud advisories and our fraud bulletins that we put out on our website to really identify, let me take a moment and sit down with the client and explain to them what this scam is. We've even ad advised them to pull up the website from the Federal Trade Commission and show them what a grandchild scheme looks like and show them how prevalent this is so that they'll have comfort. But then we just say, call the grandchild, have that conversation and assure yourself that your grandchild is okay. This is just someone trying to separate you from your money. And even for listeners who are, are younger investors, mentioning, mentioning these scams to your parents, your grandparents, your friends, helping your loved ones who might be targeted by this to know, hey, people are out there making these phone calls. Just so you know, most of the time it's a scam and you can call me, you can call your son or daughter, you know, don't fall for that emotional rush. You can't talk to anybody. It has to be right now. Yes, absolutely. And I think, again, the pause, again, the question, and again, safeguarding. You know, if those are the three takeaways, I would say are are, are always great in a, in a fraudulent situation. And intuitively, as human beings, we have instincts. So we're going to get that in the pit of our stomach. Oh, my goodness, what's happening? Allow that to be your pause to recollect yourself, gather yourself and, and understand specifically what am I looking at? What are the next steps? How do I navigate this appropriately to not make rash decisions? We've been mentioning some of these best practices as we've spoken throughout this episode, Alexandra, but can you mention again for listeners, whether they fell into you know, these specific categories of people or not, what are some of the best practices for keeping your money, keeping your personal information safe? Of course, number one, always be extremely cautious with your personal information. You know, Look out for the phone and email scams. I would say monitor your banking and credit accounts for any unauthorized activity. You can also go through the three credit bureaus and you can, you can stop credit from occurring on your account. You can also prompt that before anybody issues a credit card in your name, that that entity that's trying to issue a credit card has to physically call you and or pause where they have to send something to the three credit bureaus and you have to be responsive to that within a specified period of time. I myself do this. Uh, I have my credit locked down to where no one can get any credits, uh, credit cards on my accounts. Uh, and I also have that they have to call me. I, I put specifically that they have to call me. So those are so some really great ones. Also, ensure that your accounts can only be accessed by a select trusted individuals. Double check who has access um, so that in, in case life circumstances change, you have a backup plan. You know, I always tell my kids, what's your plan B? Because plan A is great, but when everything fails, what's plan B? So that's really uh, key. You know, sometimes life changes, whether it be a death of a spouse, a sudden divorce, uh, or an unfortunate accident occurs, make sure that you have that other trusted person on the accounts to help out. 
I would say getting guidance um, for vetting financial professionals. Make sure that the person that you're dealing with is registered. Um, make sure that you go through broker check and you check to make sure that there haven't been any complaints on that person that you're trying to do business with. Um, don't be afraid to ask questions. Ensure you understand what you are investing in, what you're paying for, and what's appropriate for your portfolio and what you see for your growth. Um, again, I go back to if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, I, I definitely would say always stay di diligent, ask questions, and insert the pause. The pause is a great thing. It allows you a moment of clarity to really make good sound decisions. And when we're talking about your finances, those are really important pauses to make. This is really valuable, this list of steps that each of us can take to feel more empowered in protecting our information. But what can you tell us about the steps that financial institutions take on behalf of their clients to help prevent the same kind of fraudulent activity? I think one of the biggest things is we do a lot of training and awareness. Uh, that is a huge campaign. You know, the first line of defense in, in any risk mitigation is to educate the first line to identify, to see potentially suspicious activity, and to know what to do with that information. So we're constantly working with business unit risk managers. We're constantly working with risk management um, and regional management teams to educate and provide scenarios. A lot of times training, everyone can look at it and be like, oh my God, I got to spend a couple hours doing this. I try to put together a one-page document that illustrates a specific type of scam that we're seeing or that I want people to be more educated about. Additionally to that, we, you know, there are continuing education units that are required that really go over the whole gamut of fraudulent activity. You know, to that end, it's also, unfortunately, when things happen, it's availability. Um, our team is constantly available on our hotline to help walk advisors through how they can help their clients be more diligent in protecting their assets, and also to provide resources to help them navigate those conversations with trusted officials. What is the next step for an investor who feels like something's not right here? This might be a case of fraud or, you know, my, my loved one might have fallen for this scam. What's the next step? What do you do? So I would definitely say we have some resources out there. The Federal Trade Commission, um, it's on their website. They are the number one entity about protecting our consumer rights. And they have a complaint page that they log those complaints and they have investigators that go out and aggregate and investigate those things. The FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, also has the Internet Computer Crime Center, IC3. Their website is phenomenal as well for logging complaints. Um, I think that contacting, if you, if you don't know where these resources are, you can simply go into a Google search and type, how do I report fraud? And I, a plethora of things will come up. I guarantee you the top two things that will come up are the Federal Trade Commission and the FBI uh, Internet Computer Crime Center. Alexander, we're so appreciative for your perspective on all of this. One last question for you. For those listeners who want to stay on top of these new scams that might be coming forward, want to know more best practices, how they can help keep their information safe, are there any resources that you'd recommend to them? 
You know, I would say um, for, for Raymond James, we have the privacy, security, and account protection. Um, that really includes protection on identity theft, credit report, fraud alerts, and online threats. You know, as mentioned before, the Federal Trade Commission and the FBI uh, Internet Computer Crime Center are also avenues to pursue. Um, ultimately, I think the biggest thing is for our listeners to be vigilant and to question, as we mentioned before, as well as safeguard their information. Alexandra Sagaro, Director and Fraud Risk Management Lead within Raymond James Anti-Money Laundering and Financial Crimes Management Team. Thank you again for sitting down and speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was great, Paige. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. You can find more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe. For what it's worth, I'll see you next time. All opinions and information, including any price references or market forecasts, correspond to the recording date listed in this episode's description. Any performance figures noted do not include fees or charges, which would reduce an investor's returns. The information contained in this podcast is not research, nor does it constitute the provision of any investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or recommendations to the listener. Raymond James and its financial advisors do not provide tax or legal advice, and you should discuss any tax or legal matters with the appropriate professional. Past performance is not an indication of future results. There is no assurance any investment strategy will be successful. Investing involves risk, and investors may incur a profit or a loss. Investment products are not deposits, not FDIC and CUA insured, not insured by any government agency, not bank guaranteed, subject to risk and may lose value. Copyright 2020 Raymond James and Associates Inc. Member New York Stock Exchange, SIPC. Copyright 2020 Raymond James Financial Services Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC.